Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is a hope that has been announced in the gospel. We pray that you today, Lord, that this hope will be clearly communicated, that we might be able to enter into this hope, that we might be able to understand it more clearly, that we might be able to find the power of Christ at work in our own hearts, not just on an occasion which Christ himself was raised from the dead, but Lord, may the power of the Spirit be at work in our hearts and minds. And Lord, we pray that you might be changing us through the preaching of your word. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen. It was a very unlikely interruption. A gentleman was headed to town to take care of some business that was something that he was rather passionate about. He was an accomplished gentleman. He was a person, however, who had a lot of challenges going on in his heart. As a matter of fact, it's fair to say that this person would have a heart that's really full of hatred. Even though he was a very religious person, a very well-respected person in many realms. But his mind had been prejudiced and and poisoned by prejudice. And this particular gentleman was a strong and adamant opponent of Jesus Christ. He was a person who was strongly opposed to anything having to do with Jesus Christ and the church. As a matter of fact, this person was convinced that Jesus was an imposter, and he was disgusted by the horrendous death that this person, Jesus, had suffered Dying on a cross was despicable in his mind, that anyone who could claim to be a Messiah and end up that way is clearly, he thought, something that was ridiculous. He was highly offended at Jesus' teaching. And really, if you read a description of this man's life, you would conclude that he was a very unlikely convert to Christianity. All was going as this man had planned until there was that time of an interruption. With no warning, someone stopped him in his tracks. He was confronted with a direct question, which was preceded by his name being called. Not once, but twice. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Up until that moment, Saul had with great determination tried to expose Jesus as a fraud. He was convinced that Jesus was dead. He was convinced and trying to make it clear to everyone around him that Jesus' teachings were irrelevant. But here now, in being confronted by the risen Christ, the King of Kings, intervenes in his life. And now he is faced with the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed alive. And therefore, everything that Jesus taught 
was true. In this account of the interruption of Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus, we see an incredible portrait of the sovereign grace of God. Intervening into Saul's life, it is Christ, Paul says later, he's changed his name to Paul, years later, looking back on that occasion, it is Paul who says, Jesus took hold of me. Here's Paul trying to, Saul trying to arrest people himself. He says, looking back, Jesus took hold or arrested me. In another portion of Scripture, he said, looking back upon his conversion, he says, light was shining into the darkness of my heart on that occasion. He also recounted the fact that God's mercy overflowed to someone as undeserving as him. Until that day, until that interruption by the risen Son of God, Paul's thinking no longer was the same. His ideas, his desires, his loyalties were radically reversed. His life, you could say, did a complete 180. What changed him? I believe it is God's good news. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, it seems like such a, a sudden event, but you must understand that that really did not, that was not all that had been happening in Saul's life prior to this interruption. You see, because Jesus had been prodding Saul for a period of time. As a matter of fact, we read in Acts 26 that Jesus, he uses the illustration, Saul used the illustration of the fact that Like an animal that's reluctant to move and reticent to do what the farmer says, the farmer takes a goad, a stick of some kind, and pushes the animal saying, get moving. Stop resisting what you're supposed to be doing. In the same way, here is Saul who had been resisting the goading of Jesus for a period of time. In what way had God been prodding him? Well, he had witnessed Stephen's martyrdom. He had seen this man, Stephen, who was proclaiming the truth of who Jesus was, understanding the plan of God and recounting the history of Israel. And in the midst of all those things, saw a raging crowd go and stone him to death. And Saul stood there and watched him. Here's this man who didn't fight back, who surrendered to it all, who said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. praying on that occasion that God would forgive those who did these things to him. Clearly, Saul was seeing the gospel at work, lived out in a person's life in such a powerful way. It clearly was goading him to say, why are you resisting this Jesus? Not only that, but I am sure that over time, Saul, despite the fact that he was such a religious person, who was such a, a rule keeper, he was a person that was doing all the right things, supposedly, on the outside, out of his religious duty, he nonetheless had a nagging conscience because he knew that he lacked the power to live a righteous life. Even though he sought to do so with great amount of energy, he knew he was failing on many different levels. And I'm sure it's fair to say he lacked peace in his heart. 
Because what we know in this account of Scripture, if you read the testimony, if you read the life of Paul as it's recounted in the pages of Scripture, you understand that what was going on there in his life was that the hound of heaven had been pursuing him for some time. And old Paul, his earlier name Saul, had been a stiff-necked, stubborn person resisting the promptings of God by His Spirit. But what I want to do today is I want to fast forward. I want to go forward 20 years after that great interruption in Saul's life. 20 years down the road and listen to what Paul says about the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the good news that had radically changed him. A good news that set him on a whole new path and given him a new heart and new desires and new status before God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, page 1338 in your pew Bible. And listen to Paul recount and summarize some of his understanding about this transformed beliefs that he now has because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Every phrase, every clause of this opening, of this magnus opus, this incredible epistle that Paul composed to explain the gospel to the believers there in Rome, all of this is jam-packed with exciting good news. I want us to focus this morning, however, just on two verses here. I want to look at verses 3 and 4 and unpack for you in our moments together this morning three elements, three elements of the good news from God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is the fact that the good news which God has made known is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. It's also built upon the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And lastly, it is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's look first of all then at the gospel is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3. The gospel is concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One thing we need to affirm this morning as we think about the gospel is that Jesus is not merely one in a series of good teachers or good prophets, but he is unique. He stands apart from everyone else. Apart from Jesus, there is no message of good news. Apart from him, there is no gospel. You see, there are many world religions that are built around the teachings of their founders. But the one who founded the various movements 
the teachings can stand apart from them. For example, a Buddhist can practice Buddhist beliefs apart from the person of Buddha. A Mormon can practice Mormon beliefs apart from Joseph Smith. But Christianity has as its core the person of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Without the star that we call the sun in the center of this solar system, we wouldn't have a solar system. All those heavenly bodies would be flying around in various disorder. Without the person of Jesus Christ, there would be no Christian faith. And that is why Mark begins his gospel, his account of Jesus' life and ministry, in chapter 1, verse 1, with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This person upon whom the gospel is built is not the Jesus of myths, is not the Jesus of superstition. If you read the scriptures, you take them at face value. You'll read a record that is historically accurate because it's written and composed by eyewitnesses. Luke began his first New Testament book in this way. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of these things, accomplished among us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Interestingly enough, if you read the second book that Luke composed, the book of Acts, he starts off that book by reminding his readers that to the apostles, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. You see, Christianity is not just stories. It's not made-up fables. It's not just some higher level of of thinking that is talking about spiritual matters not anchored to historical truth. But Peter says in his book, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. I wonder if you read through the Gospels, if you've ever wondered why in those accounts you come across so many specific names. Names of people you think, well, why are these people's names included here? People like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, Simon of Cyrene. Why is he in there? And why does it mention that Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus? What is that doing in the historical record of Mark's gospel, for example. Why is Cleopas named by name in Luke 24 in the account of Jesus' resurrection appearance and many others? I would suggest to you that gospel writers intentionally included the names of specific people in the same way and for the same purpose as you and I encounter or utilize footnotes in various papers that you write, or research that you're involved in. You see, what they're doing is by mentioning specific names, they're indicating that the source 
who provided this eyewitness account is the person that you can go and speak to and consult and ask them, is indeed this true? By mentioning these specific people, the authors of the New Testament encouraged all first century doubters and skeptics to speak directly to those specific eyewitnesses so that they might be fully convinced of the accuracy of the writings. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It is indeed the good news rooted in history about the person who is truly real, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. And Jesus is not a mythical figure. He has invaded history. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. And my friend, one day, if he hasn't already, he's going to invade your world. Just like Saul, he will interrupt you at some point with a question or two and call you by name. And that's why we continue to say again and again and again that this is not, Christianity is not a religion. It is all about Jesus Christ. It's about a person who has come, who has lived, who has died, and who is alive again. That's why the New Testament, Paul says this. He says that to be a Christian is to be be called into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ, knowing Him, trusting Him, loving Him, serving Him, celebrating Him. It's all about Jesus. And so you can look at at another time, get your microscope out, and you can read the quote at the bottom of your notes if you want. But it serves the purpose of saying that we are here as a church not to be religious. We're not talking about religion. We're here to preach Christ, and we're here to point people to Christ that they might know Him and love Him and serve Him. The gospel of God is built upon Jesus Christ, the true person. Do you know him? Do you know him as he's revealed himself through the scriptures? Secondly, the gospel of God is built upon Jesus Christ's incarnation. You say, well, I thought we were talking about the resurrection. Well, we're going to get there. But look at what Paul, interestingly, is concerned to point out to his readers when it comes to the gospel, the good news, because one of the unique characteristics of Jesus Christ, which sets him apart from all others, is that he became something that he was not before. Now, this is not to say that Jesus Christ moved from a state of non-existence to a state of existence at some set point in time. Hear me carefully here. Jesus Christ always and eternally existed as God. The first verse of John's Gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was eternal. There came a time, however, in Jesus' existence when something dramatically changed about Him. And you read that in verse 3 of Romans 1. Jesus was born the descendant of David, according to the flesh. You see, the good news that God proclaims is that God has entered into the human race in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has always existed as God, but at the right moment, He became flesh, John 1.14, and He dwelt among us human beings. 
Jesus took on human nature while remaining and retaining his divine nature. Philippians 2 says, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. Elsewhere in Colossians, we read that Paul describes Jesus as, In Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Who else comes close to any kind of reality as this? See, Jesus did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. It was the beginning of his human existence. And Jesus did not take on a phantom body. He did not sort of appear as if he seemed to have a body, as some people teach. As a matter of fact, many Muslims claim that the quote-unquote eternal Christ entered into Jesus at his baptism and left him before he was crucified on the cross. But our text this morning, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, makes it very clear that Jesus entered into full manhood, humanhood. He experienced hunger, he experienced thirst, and he had physical exhaustion like every other human being. Now this is vitally important. Why? Because if Jesus was not truly human while remaining God, then he could not serve and be qualified to serve as our mediator, representing us before God as a human. Paul also highlights the fact that Jesus was, interestingly enough, he uses the term the seed of David or the descendant of David. Why does he point that out? Well, he was making it clear to his readers that Jesus had the family lineage. He had the ancestral records to verify that he was truly a descendant of King David. About a year and a half ago, our son Eric got married and his wife's family uh, went to a lot of trouble and had done their homework and asked Joyce to gather some information from our side of the family and our family tree history and compiled a lot of data about the family genealogy of uh, our son's wife now and uh, our son and his and our family and we began to see uh, all this information gathered together ancestry.com and things we provide them and all this pictures and amazing amount of information was compiled and they, they provided it to a commercial artist and this commercial uh, graphic artist was able to lay it out in such a fascinating way pictures of our son and his wife, and then our uh, wedding pictures of uh, her parents and us, and, and then all these grandparents and great-grandparents, and on down it goes. Of course, you get far enough, you don't have any more photos, you get names. And then they kept on going, and at the bottom of these long columns, you see the different emblems of different nationalities, different nations representative of all the different ethnic backgrounds these people bring into this, now this union. It was fascinating, by the way. On the muster side, my grandmother's side, there's royalty. Going back, you know, Scotland. I mean, I just want you to know, I learned that. Not worth even getting a cup of coffee, but that's what I learned. But when Paul talks about Jesus Christ, and he mentions that his lineage goes back to King David, what is he saying? Jesus' family line could be traced back on his mother's side, which is recounted in the Gospel of Luke. 
And on his adoptive father's side, in the Gospel of Matthew, it all goes back to David. In other words, there's royalty in his lineage. And when the Roman authorities conducted the census upon the birth, about the time when Jesus was about to be born, Joseph and Mary went to where? They went back to the city of David, because that is their lineage, that is their ancestry. They were from royal lineage. Now, why is this significant? It's because after 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, all the ancestry records were also destroyed. What does that mean? That means that anyone who appears on the scene now and who claims to be the Messiah, their claim cannot be confirmed. There are no records. Jesus was the promised. He was the predicted son of David. He was the fulfillment of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Indeed, Jesus is the one whom Jeremiah wrote about when he said, I will raise up to David a righteous branch, capital B, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So when we think of Jesus and his incarnation, we're thinking of one who has come now as human and he is king. He's not merely a respectable teacher. He is Messiah. He is God's Messiah. He is anointed one. And he reigns over all. And that's why Paul later on understood who Jesus' true identity was. And he wrote this fascinating comment that he says, At the name of Jesus, the true Messiah, the anointed one of God, every knee should bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know what it means to bend your knee? It means that you humble yourself and say, I am not worthy to be on the same level or to be in your presence. I am humbling myself before you, acknowledging that you are far greater than I am. To confess someone as Lord means that you're confessing them in their position of highest honor and, and power and status before you. And so as we affirm the gospel, we're affirming that Jesus Christ We are to confess him as Lord, because that's really who he is. A third point I want to mention to us this morning has to do with the fact that the gospel of God is built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what the text says there in Romans chapter 1. Paul went on to write that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. How did he do that? by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, there's a real problem that occurred by means of the despicable type of death that Jesus suffered. Because when Jesus was put to death, not just by stoning, not just by even hanging, But when Jesus Christ was put to death by crucifixion, it's fair to say that most, if not all, messianic expectations evaporated. How could the Messiah die, first of all, is is problem enough, but then how could the Romans put to death 
this anointed one, the anointed one of God, by means of a crucifixion. So that's why Paul is pointing out to us that the gospel declares that Jesus, in his resurrection, made it very clear his true identity for all to see. Don't let his death mislead you or somehow confuse you. Because he says here in the text, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. Because crucifixion is the ultimate in lack of power. Crucifixion is to be declared a person who is so despised and so cursed by God that clearly this must not be the one who could save anybody. But in his incarnation, we know that Jesus' kingship was somewhat hidden in a sense. For 33 years, he was a king, but in many ways incognito, not easily recognized. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 puts it this way. Paul says, Jesus was crucified because of weakness. That's for sure. He laid down his life. And yet he lives because of the power of God. Jesus' resurrection allows us to see who Jesus really is. He is the one who has all authority. He wasn't a victim. He was not a helpless martyr. He has power over death. He was raised according to the spirit of holiness, Paul wrote. Now, when you take that phrase, and I know many of you probably think that the spirit there would be a capitalized spirit. I'm going to suggest to you it refers to a small s because you contrast it with according to the flesh. And therefore, we would understand that Jesus' spirit was holy. What he's saying here is that every other human who is a descendant of Adam, and that includes all of us, we've inherited a sinful nature. We are people who, because of our sinful nature, sin. And because we sin, therefore, we will die. But Jesus did not have a sin nature. Jesus was holy. He was without sin. So how could he have died? That is a real question, real problem. And of course, if you read the gospel long enough and carefully enough, you know that he died not as a consequence of his own sinfulness, but he died laying down his life as a God-supplied substitute to provide sinners who did deserve to die He's supplying us the only sufficient payment to satisfy the just demands of our holy God. So that's why our memory verse for this particular month is 1 Peter 3.18. The just one died for the unjust. That is, Jesus is dying for those of us who are not righteous. That he might what? That he might bring us to God. By raising Jesus from the dead, God declared that Jesus' death as a substitute, not as a result of his own sin, but that was a sufficient and adequate payment for our sins. And because Jesus was raised from the dead and he is alive, therefore I declare to you the good news that Jesus is the exalted, victorious, all-powerful, holy preeminent, supreme, all-glorious one. And all of the claims that Jesus made about himself are true. He predicted time and time again 
on numerous occasions with different people that he would rise again. And he did. Therefore, Jesus is entirely trustworthy. You can count on his promises. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. And death has no hold on him anymore. He is now exalted in the position of highest and supreme glory and majesty that he once enjoyed. It's now his again. And one day, he will return. His invisible rule will become more clearly manifested as his visible glory is seen by all. And he will establish his visible kingdom for all to see. It will be indisputable that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because Jesus is supreme, there's not a one of us who will not bend our knee before him and confess that he truly is who he stated to be, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I say to you that since no one will escape that day of accountability before him, now is the day to repent. Now is the time to place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Now is the time to say, I am counting on 100% of my trust and reliance. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my efforts, my, my abilities to do things to resolve issues in my heart and life. I am trusting completely and entirely upon Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on that cross and his resurrection from the dead to prove it was all done completely and to satisfy our holy and just God. The question is, have you, have I personally embraced the promises of God in Jesus Christ? Is Jesus merely a Savior or is he your Savior? Have you entered into eternal life? Do you know what it is to have unspeakable joy in knowing God and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ our Lord? God calls us in the gospel into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, the son of man and the son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to conclude my message this morning with going back to what I started with, the surprising interruption. Suppose if Jesus Christ were to call your name out aloud today. Tom, Tom. Mary, Mary. Put your name in the blank. What if he asked you a question or two, stopped you in your tracks? Why if he were to ask, why are you ignoring me? Jesus would remind you, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty One. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel is what he would say to you. Maybe if you're another person and Jesus might call your name and say, why are you defying me? Clearly ignoring the things that I've commanded you to do. Jesus will say, I 
will judge the living and the dead. That includes you. It includes me. To others, Jesus will say, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you resisting the proddings of my spirit as I continually are trying to bring to your attention how much you need me? Jesus will say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Some of you, Jesus would ask, why are you refusing to believe me, to trust in me? And Jesus will say, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on that day. Others of us, Jesus may ask the question, why are you so weighed down by a guilty conscience? Jesus will say to them, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I myself will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, Jesus will say. To others, Jesus will ask the question, why are you not doing what I assigned to you? He will say to you, be on the alert, for you do not know which is the day that your Lord is coming. Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think that He will. Be ready. To others, He will ask the question, why are you so oblivious to my love, to my grace, to my goodness? Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus will say, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. He will also say, my grace is all you need. My grace is all sufficient for you. Others of us, Jesus will interrupt us, perhaps he is today, saying, why are you so downcast? Why are you so discouraged? Jesus will say, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Some of us, when we think about the future, Jesus will say, why, are you, why is your heart so troubled? <laughs> why are you so fearful of what's yet to unfold? About dying, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. To others, Jesus may ask the question, why do you lack contentment? Why is your heart so bent out of shape? And Jesus will say, I spoke these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. He wants you to know full joy. There are many other questions perhaps that Jesus might ask you. But I wonder what would you say if Jesus, the risen King of Kings, interrupts you, calls you by name and asks you a question, what are you going to do? Let me tell you something. Saul got on his knees and listened. Let's pray.
Our Father, again, we are reminded through this wonderful portion of your word that the gospel is not about us working hard, doing lots of things that are commendable, trying with all of our energy to become better people. But Lord, we thank you that the good news that you've given to us is what you have accomplished in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the gospel is about the person of Christ, that he truly took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died a real death on the cross as our substitute. His real body was buried in a real grave. And he has physical and family relationships that link him back to King David as a true king, the promised one. We thank you that the gospel also reminds us that Jesus is alive, victor over the grave. And Father, I pray that as we announce this good news this day, that you might apply this good news to the hearts of all who are here today. We pray that you might help us, Lord, to hear what, you're, what you, in calling our names, what you would say to us today. Help us, we pray, to heed your voice. Help us to respond in whatever way your Spirit is prompting us. Help us, Lord, not to be those who, like Saul, were resistant to your proddings time and time again. Give us, we pray, a humble heart that will turn from our sins and repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Confess Him as Lord and then know the joy, the full joy of having Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and to know He's with us and that His joy is our joy. We pray, Father, that you might help us to embrace the gospel, to treasure the gospel, to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.